Sometimes the public doesn't believe what we are told to believe, and our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. In an article on ThoughtCatalog.com, the author, after setting up the narrative of his story and providing examples of some of the shaming comments he has received, states, I have been the victim of intolerance and discrimination, all because I failed to meet society's expectations of a perfect pair of lungs. I have been subjected to being called names. Worse, I've been denied across all kinds of places, including restaurants, bars, airplanes, schools, and churches. Now, I know what you may be thinking this is all about, but you would be wrong in this case. This was written over five years ago, so let's continue. He goes on to say, I've been told not to come back until I put out that cigarette, as if that's easy. I've been dumped because I'm a smoker. She told me to pick between her and cigarettes, as if that was a choice I could make. Well, the article goes on shaping this story of life as a smoker and being subjected to smoke shaming. He concludes with a call to action. Society is more than content to ridicule, ostracize, and discriminate against smokers. Smoke shaming is prevalent, and it's time to end. To this end, I propose a beginning, the beginning of the smoker acceptance movement. It's time people learn to stop judging others based on the nature of their habit the length of their cigarettes, or the size of their packs. We smokers are just as healthy, competent, and sexy as everyone else. It's time we make our stand. <laughs> the following, though situated somewhere in the middle of the article, gives away the true intent of the story. And here this quote, Smoker shaming hurts smokers. Your words cut deep. We don't like being called disgusting, unhealthy, or stinky just because we're carrying a few extra packs. Now, did you get that? A few extra packs. Some readers in the comments of the article clearly failed to read the subtext, while others clued in on the hidden context. But one reader posting a comment anonymously exposes the truth, while at the same time explaining the basis for the double standard that the author is calling out. The reader comment states, This is clearly satire, and it's supposed to be making fun of claims of fat shaming. But there's a difference between being fat, which actually isn't always due to poor health choices, and some studies suggest may not be all that bad for your health, and choosing to smoke, put yourself in danger, and expose everyone around you to it. Well, the sentiment is clear. Fat shaming and smoke shaming are not the same thing. Fat shaming is an unacceptable behavior to a problem that may have external causes outside of the control of the overweight individual. But social shaming is acceptable when the behavior presents a danger to those around you. Secondhand smoke is a thing, while secondhand fat isn't. Now, this article is clearly satire, with the title Stop Smoker Shaming and the byline attributing authorship to Jameson Dumariere. Now, Dumariere, 
I figured out quickly, is a very popular Canadian brand of cigarettes, which is a bit on the nose. And that's why I didn't give you the author's name right away, lest my Canadian listeners get the punchline too quickly and start laughing. But when did it get cool to make fun of smokers and criticize smoking as a public threat? I mean, smoking was cool for decades. Smokers exuded coolness. You won't find an action movie before the 1990s or 2000s where most of the characters don't smoke, at least some point. But that changed. The battle against public smoking has been in progress since the 1970s. The early 70s saw the U.S. Surgeon General propose federal smoking bans in public places and identifying secondhand smoke as posing a health risk. The decade saw the beginnings of smoking bans on public places in Arizona, Connecticut, and California. The 1980s expanded on the concern of health risk with the proclamation of secondhand smoke as a cause of cancer in healthy non-smokers. The Department of Health and Human Services established a smoke-free work environment in all its buildings, and Congress mandates uh, a smoking ban on all short-duration domestic airline flights. A 1987 Gallup poll found 55% of Americans favoring a complete ban on public smoking. In the 90s, flight restrictions on smoking are expanded to longer flights, and the EPA classifies secondhand smoke as a carcinogen, placing it in the same category as asbestos and radon. Smoking gets banned in restaurants, workplaces, bars, and hotels in various cities around the country. President Clinton signs an executive order establishing smoke-free environments for federal employees and the public visiting federally owned facilities. Yep, it was a hard-fought and busy three decades for anti-smoking efforts, but the big win would be found in the first decade of the 21st century. 2005 saw the beginnings of enactment of 100% smoke-free regulations for workplaces, restaurants, and bars. By 2009, enough states had enacted restriction regulations or banning laws that up to 16,500 municipalities were covered by a 100% smoke-free provision of some sort representing over 70% of the U.S. population. How did the 2000s see such a boom in anti-smoking? Was it just because it's icky? Well, no. They can thank Helena Montana for their successes. In June of 2002, the small capital city implemented a comprehensive smoking ban in all workplaces, bars, restaurants, and casinos. Now, that ban was struck down after six months uh, by, by a judge um, when it was discontinued. But it was found during that first six months of this ban that the rate of heart attacks experienced in the city plummeted by nearly 60%. When the ban was lifted, the heart attack rate returned to pre-ban levels. This extraordinarily swift turnaround was identified by two local physicians and an anti-smoking activist from the University of California at San Francisco. The sudden drop in heart attacks was proof that smoking bans protect people from the toxins in secondhand smoke and immediately start saving lives. These findings were presented to the public in a press release sent out by UCSF in 2003. It was snatched up by news outlets across the country, nay, around the world, proclaiming such headlines as secondhand smoke kills 
and citing the result as an important finding. Anti-smoking groups across the country seized upon the finding and added their own twist. Some claimed that even half an hour of secondhand smoke exposure causes heart damage similar to that of habitual smokers, with one group in Minnesota stating that it required only 30 seconds of exposure. The message was clear. The slightest exposure to secondhand smoke can kill you. The punchline here, there was no study to cite. The findings reported in the press release were not published as a study in a medical journal until 2004, in which the heart attack drop was reduced from 60% to 40%. It was finally available for peer review and potential criticism as new studies were developed seeking to replicate the finding. Almost immediately, it was in jeopardy. A study in Italy found a decline of only 11%, and only in residents under 60 years old. In England, which had recently implemented a national smoking ban, reduction in heart attacks was found to be only 2%. In 2008, a study covering the entire country of New Zealand found no significant effects on heart attacks or unstable angina in the year following implementation of a smoking ban. A RANDCORP study in 2010 came to the same conclusion, as did studies in 2012 and 14. In 2016, a study did initially find a reduction in hospitalizations for heart attacks and congestive heart failure following smoking bans, but after additional analysis of factors suggested the modest improvements in cardiac health may actually be caused by factors such as access to medical care and people smoking less when taxes were increased, rather than a reduction in case of incidences in non-smokers. Okay, so secondhand smoke may not be linked to heart failure in non-smokers, but all those laws and public condemnation still saves us from cancer, right? Sorry. In 2013, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute detailed a study of 76,000 women conducted over a decade and exploring the link between smoking and cancer. Surprise! Smoking causes cancer. Lung cancer was 13 times more common in current smokers and 4 times more common in former smokers than in non-smokers. In fact, there was no statistically significant relationship between lung cancer and exposure to passive smoke. Even for women that lived with a smoker for 30 years or more, no significant statistical relationship was found. One researcher in an article on the subject admitted that the most important effect of indoor smoking bans may be on smokers. And this is an important quote. The strongest reason to avoid passive cigarette smoke is to change societal behavior. To not live in a society where smoking is a norm. This from Dr. Giotti Patel of Northwestern University School of Medicine. Well, welcome back, theoriologists. This episode, we are discussing social control theory and moral panic, and how governments may use this to their advantage. Now, I'm sure you are wondering, if this is the start of the discussion, why did it take so long to get here, and why, after all that, wasn't smoking ban part of the title of the episode? Well, it's because that's not what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> Insert pregnant pause here for a precocious smile from your host. No, actually, we're going to address a question. And I want you to think about this as we work through the episode. The question is, do you think there's merit to the idea that governments and societal authorities use 
something called social control theory and moral panic to shape public behavior at the expense of personal freedoms and liberties. Now, that's probably a lot of new terminology, so let's work through everything uh, that we're talking about. First, let's talk about the actual conspiratorial issues that we are discussing. The first is the idea of forced vaccination and the removal of exemptions for health and religious observance or even just personal aversion. The removal of choice over the medication of oneself, ostensibly for the greater good of public health. And the second topic is forced face masking requirements and the removal of exemptions in kind. Now, these are more related than you may think, and one appears to be preparing the public for the other, something that may very well be recognized by the public, either consciously or subconsciously, and causing recoil. See, there are some common threads with these two ideas and beliefs um, that, uh, that we should discuss. The first is that these are social behaviors that must be adopted by nearly all of the population, regardless of one's desire to choose not to participate or opt out. The second is that they are justified as imperatives to protect the safety of others. The rest of society is dependent on your participation in the behavior. This is in contrast to actions that could be taken that would assume the responsibility of the individual for their own safety, health, and well-being. The third is that social shaming and proactive advertising and marketing, even celebrity support, are all informal social control tactics utilized to normalize the behavior. And finally, formal social control requirements are used as well, such as federal guidelines, local and state mandates, city ordinances, and access restrictions to both public and private spaces, and even fines and punishments defined for violation by both individuals or businesses and organizations. We have previously discussed the psychology of masks and the impact to social interaction, empathy, and personal inhibition. But this time, the discussion focuses on the sociology of these issues and the use of social controls to establish, implement, and normalize desired behaviors within the population. In order to discuss the relationship of these two issues and understand uh, the current divide in public opinion on both topics, we must understand the terms and tools being used to execute this shaping of social norms. The first to address is social control theory. I've already said that several times, so let's see what it's about. Well, social control theory refers generally to societal and political mechanisms or processes that regulate individual and group behavior, leading to conformity and compliance to the rules of a given society, a state, or a social group. Sociologists identify two basic forms of social controls. The first is the internalization of norms and values, and the second are external sanctions, which can be either positive, read rewards, or negative, i.e. punishment. Now, the means to enforce social control can be either what's known as formal or informal. The social values that are present in individuals are products of informal social control. 
It's exercised by a society without explicitly stating these rules, and it's expressed through customs and norms and mores. Individuals are socialized, whether consciously or subconsciously. During informal sanctions, ridicule or ostracism can cause a straying towards norms. The person internalizes these mores and norms. Traditional society uses mostly informal social control embedded in its customary culture, relying on the socialization of its members. Informal sanctions can include things such as shaming, ridicule, sarcasm, criticism, and disapproval. In extreme cases, sanctions may include social discrimination and exclusion. This implied social control usually has more effect on individuals because they become internalized and then an aspect of their personality. Informal sanctions check, quote, deviant behavior. Former social control isn't so subtle. It's conducted by government and organizations using law enforcement mechanisms and other formal sanctions such as fines and imprisonment. In democratic societies, the goals and mechanisms of formal social control are determined through legislation by elected representatives and thus enjoy a measure of support from the population and a level of voluntary compliance. Now that, in very simplistic nutshell, is social control theory. And while one could argue that social controls, both formal and informal, are a necessary part of social order, without which societies could not exist, it is also apparent that these techniques can quickly lend themselves to abuses. The second term to discuss is moral panic. Now, moral panic is a situation in which public fears and state interventions greatly exceed the objective threat posed to society by a particular individual or entity or group who are claimed to be responsible for creating the threat in the first place. It was developed and popularized by criminologist Stanley Cohen in the 1970s. Cohen outlined five key stages to the development of moral panic. First, someone or something or group of things are defined as a threat to social norms or community interest. Secondly, the threat is depicted in simple and recognizable forms by the media, something Cohen terms the folk devil. Thirdly, prolific portrayal of this imagery rouses public concern, which is quickly followed by the fourth stage, that of response from authorities and policymakers. Finally, the fifth stage is a social change in the community over the moral panic. Central to the concept is the mutual benefit that public concern brings to state officials and law enforcement and the media. Modern history is replete with examples, such as the panic over communism during the McCarthyism era of the 1950s and the satanic panic of the late 1980s and early 90s. But examples also go way, way back to include such events as the Salem Witch Trials in the 17th century, which was such a pronounced moral panic event that, though localized, that even today moral panics are synonymous with the term witch hunt. The benefit to media is apparent, with the public turning to media outlets to get all the pressing information required to properly identify this insidious threat. Media gets to set the agenda, 
defining what is newsworthy and controlling the narrative, authorities and politicians also benefit, with moral panic providing justifications for increased legal powers of enforcement and easier avenues for personal and political agendas of legislation and lobbyist support and power. Moral panic is ultimately a practical application and expression of the use of formal and informal social controls. An issue once raised to moral panic often so drastically changes public perception and behavior that when new law or restrictions are put in place, the approval and acceptance of new societal controls is a foregone conclusion by the public often receiving praise and appreciation by a fearful populace that might previously have balked at added controls over a particular behavior. Now, the final term to address is something called rationalization. This is the use of feeble but seemingly plausible arguments either to justify something that is difficult to accept or to make it seem not so bad after all. This self-deception method is a mental protection tactic that we human beings make to handle outcomes that are frightening to consider and represent a major threat to our beliefs that make up our sense of self. You know, if you want to explore belief and identity, go back and listen to the series on Flat Earth Theory. This is not rational thought, mind you, but rather a means of processing a cognitive dissonance, which of course is not an idea only attributable to conspiracy theory, though debunkers would have you believe so. A simple example that I found to convey the idea of rationalization, if you haven't already come up with one on your own, is found when a person is rejected by a love interest, only to then convince themselves that he or she was rejected because they did not share the ideal of happiness with the other person. And the rejection was in fact a blessing in disguise, because the right partner is still out there. Rationalization is the proverbial, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Okay, so now we have all the tools required for assessing our question, which, again, is there legitimacy to the idea that governments and authorities use social control to reshape public behavior at the expense of your personal liberties? Let's take a look at these tools and walk through one of our topics. Let's take vaccines. Vaccination, we've been told, for decades are the key to ending the current public health crisis. Issues such as influenza, measles, and chickenpox. Now, they're the world's only hope against COVID-19. First, informal social controls began to influence public opinion through promotion of vaccine use by doctors and public health officials. Marketing campaigns ensued by pharmaceutical companies. Celebrities and famous personalities began to speak out, encouraging, even insisting on the use of vaccines. Soon, the public began to adopt these practices. Adults, children, infants, and even newborns began receiving vaccines, most with mild side effects. Most. With staggered periodic vaccination normalized, annual vaccination became the focus. Parents that had vaccinated their children encouraged others to do so. When their own children became parents, they were encouraged to do so. Soon, an unvaccinated child was an unprotected child, an unhealthy child raised by uncaring parents. Legislation 
was soon to follow with requirements and restrictions associated with public services like education and medical care. If you didn't vaccinate, which you could choose to do, you simply gave up access to certain privileges or career opportunities. But what about those that choose not to? Those that would choose not to use those public services, perhaps by homeschooling their children. And many adults don't work in the healthcare industry. Informal and formal social controls are not completely affected. A moral panic is then introduced. Vaccination is reframed. Vaccines are no longer intended to protect the individual vaccinated. In fact, they are best used to reduce exposure for others. Since vaccines don't prevent infection, but rather prepare your body to respond to the infection immediately, the vaccines actually reduce symptoms and make the recipient asymptomatic in most cases because the body's immune response is quick enough, in theory, to prevent proliferation and reproduction of the invading contagion. This reduction in symptoms means a reduction in spread. Now, it is up to you to save those around you, those that can't receive the vaccine. And the list of those that cannot receive the vaccine doesn't include you, are only protected through your vaccination. Other children are protected by your children, your responsible parenting. In fact, even other vaccinated children rely on your child being vaccinated because their vaccine isn't protecting them. It's busy protecting others around them. Soon the folk devil is introduced, the anti-vaxxer. These monsters that don't care what happens to others, these criminals that use false narrative and pseudoscience to argue concerns, they even dare to claim that their child can't receive vaccines because of medical conditions. And of course, they are lying. Yes, some people legitimately can't receive vaccines, you know, like the very old, the very young, and the immunocompromised. But anti-vaxxers, of course, never fall into those categories. Trust us, they are lying, shameful, heartless creatures that need to be stopped in their tracks. Laws should be put in place to stop their tyranny. The only way to protect those that can't protect themselves is to ensure that everyone is 100% protected. Make sense? Laws protecting the pharmaceutical companies also need to be put in place so that no one can sue them and lose access to vaccines for others. But sometimes there are side effects, legitimately. Well, we can rationalize this as a necessary consequence of the current public health crisis. Whew, okay, there is a problem, though. All these years of hard work to normalize expansive and continuous vaccination as a behavior of well-balanced contributing members of society which adequately prepares us to do what is needed in the face of COVID-19, but we have no vaccine. In fact, it's not even close. Articles are starting to surface that the current contenders are failing in testing. Worse, the vaccine might just be impossible. Just this month, a report has come out that the antibodies are not remaining present in the body after infection. Vaccination against coronaviruses may not be possible. If they are, it certainly won't be by the end of 2020, as promised initially by the government. This is a tough situation. All that social control theory put in place and the public brought to a frothy frenzy through moral panic, ready to rationalize any horrendous consequence to rushed and under-tested vaccine candidates and what they may present, what to do? It's time for a new devil. 
entered the face mask. See, we were wrong. All those years of studies indicating that face masks were questionably effective, at best for anything but a very limited use in certain medical settings, that was all wrong. In just a few months, we've discovered the truth. Masks will now stop anything larger than a subatomic quantum particle. All the hand-washing, social distancing, and self-monitoring won't mean a thing unless you are wearing a mask in the grocery store, at the park, the beach, or alone in your car, perhaps even in your own home. And yes, that has been recommended. But there are still monsters out there. Those that question how masks suddenly gained more efficacy than ever before. More than even the manufacturers of the masks are willing to claim on the product. These mask deniers, these anti-maskers, they are the monsters. They don't care about others. They use false claims of fake illness and medical conditions preventing the use of masks. Sure, there are exemptions for those that have medical reason for not wearing a mask, but that never really applies to those folk devil anti-maskers. See, masks don't just protect you. In fact, they don't protect you. They are needed to protect others. You cannot be protected unless others around you are protected. Your mask is too busy protecting the other mask wearers around you to protect you. They have to protect you. Businesses have started banning anti-masker customers. Churches, schools, community centers, and even families and friends have started shutting their doors to those wicked, deviant anti-maskers. The media, at first focused on concerns about those affected by the coronavirus, now focus on imagery and discussion to vilify those unwilling, because of course no one is actually unable, to wear a mask. Mask shaming has become a sport. Memes and vitriol on social media are rampant. Finally, the law stepped in. Cities issued ordinances, states issued guidelines and mandates. Public services closed their doors to non-mask-wearing citizens. Some cities have implemented hotlines and email addresses made available for citizens to report those violating the ban on showing your face in public. Yes, sure, they may affect us psychologically, destroy our social interaction, impact the emotional and psychological development of our children, and add fuel to the already raging fire of economic collapse occurring from shutdowns, quarantines, and lockdowns, but rationally, it's all for the public health. Okay, I think the point is made. The parallels are obvious. It seems apparent, hopefully to more than just me, that masks became the distraction needed to divert public attention away from the constant delay of vaccine development and hide the overall lack of preparedness that governments had in the face of a new contagion. No one is attacking political leaders over timelines of vaccine development or even the development of therapeutics to treat patients in the interim. The public is turned in on themselves. They are attacking each other. Too busy now to question things like the pharmaceutical companies over the possibility of viral interference caused by flu vaccines being the possible reason the public is more susceptible to coronavirus infection. Or why the patient statistics seem to shift and change as fluidly as the political attitudes change. The public is ready to remove all barriers to forced masking at all cost. Destroy the folk devil. By the time we get around to the actual vaccine, the exact same mindset will be in place. Now, you may think 
that I have over-exaggerated this entire explanation. But this is how social control theory expresses. This is how moral panic plays out. The actual progression plays out over an extended period of time, which is part of the acceptability. But when you summarize it into a few paragraphs, the hyperbole of the entire situation appears. We all each have a personal view on the issues of vaccines and face masks, especially in the context of COVID-19 or pandemic situations in general. You may feel it's all justified given the public health crisis, or you may find it all to be an absolute violation of your personal choice and freedom of will. You devil you. You, as listeners to this show, probably fall somewhere in the middle, trying to navigate through all of the diametrically opposed extremes of the issue to find a reasonable balance. Perhaps you can rationalize a compromise. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Ultimately, however you find yourself viewing the issue, realize that this is how it is playing out. These are the tools in place for societies to introduce and rebalance behaviors and interactions. This is how society creates a new normal. Is this what you want for your new normal to be? And who does it really benefit? Let's end this as we begin this discussion and bookend with a second look at the issue of secondhand smoke. Secondhand smoke was a folk devil that created a moral panic at a global scale. The folk devil played its part. The media did their part. Authorities and politicians introduced rule of law and enforcement as they are supposed to with formal social controls. Ultimately, then, the public played their part through informal social controls. The new normal for smoking inexorably changed. No study or finding to the contrary will change the normative behavior of society. Not for a long time, anyway. This is how these situations play out. This is not some theoretical scenario thought up by sociologists and criminologists. The reason that this quote-unquote conspiracy theory of control exists surrounding vaccines and face masks is because it is recognizable to the public. It resonates because we have seen it happen before, over and over again. You may find this to be a necessary evil given the circumstance, or believe that ultimately societies improve through this constant development and changing of behavioral norms. Those that do have probably tuned out of this episode ages ago, but if you haven't, I appreciate that you have listened all the way through. Now, now that we're done, I think I can leave you with an additional perspective on moral panic and its use in social control. See, there are criticisms to moral panic theory, of course, with one argument being that exaggerated reporting of deviance is so common these days that the public is simply desensitized to the effect. But here's something to think about. Perhaps desensitization is itself a normalization of behavior in order to hide something from the public. Think back to the media coverage of what came to be known as Pizzagate. The issue began with an online accusation of possible pedophilia activities that may have been discussed at a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., for which the owner of the restaurant was a very successful and very well-connected member of the whole political community in D.C. This was played up by politicians and members of the media as some wild conspiracy theory that children were being held as sex slaves in the basement of a pizza parlor. Of course, this restaurant doesn't have a basement, and no children were ever found. 
The absurdity of the scenario was palpable. If you need to know the reference to silly basement theories, you need to make yourself watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure, in which Pee-wee Herman is told to investigate the basement of the Alamo to find his stolen bicycle. The public found this exaggerated narrative of the original accusation so ridiculous that any future implication of large-scale pedophilia and child sex trafficking was deemed unbelievable. Only now, with the eventual arrest of Epstein and Maxwell and the revelation of potential involvement of dozens and dozens of well-known members of upper society, has consideration even been remotely given to the idea that child sex trafficking is a real thing. The question is, did that subverted moral panic work so well to normalize the perception of absurdity of such a scenario that the public may never accept the possibility? How many people will continue to get away with it because of that? How many people will admit that maybe hashtag Pizzagate was a real thing? Okay, that is all for today. We introduced a lot of new concepts and terminology with this episode much of which I'm still absorbing, so take your time and think through it. But what do you think? Is there validity to evaluating these issues with the concepts of social control theory and moral panic in mind? Do you find any problem with these issues playing out as they seem to be? Is it wrong to rationalize the risks and trade-offs for perceived safety and benefit to the overall public good? Well, let me know. Email me at contact at conspiracytheorology.com or find me on the socials at TheoriologyPod. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Bring more to the discussion or introduce new topics in the Facebook group. Search for the Conspiracy Theoriology Podcast group. All this info can be found at the website conspiracytheorology.com along with links to the merchandise store where you can get t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies to support the show. I've got links down below to everything that's been discussed this episode. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, theoriologists, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoriology. 